0: everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Tuesday, September 22nd. Coming to you live uh, from the middle of Tropical tropical Storm Beta, which is kind of an interesting name to give to a tropical storm. But uh, I do have a fun show for you today. We're going to take on several different topics, uh, including Nikola, uh, what's happened with the TikTok sale, and Oracle, and Walmart, and what that means for all three of those companies. Uh, there's been a bunch of leaked Finson documents over the last week that shine a, another negative light on institutional banking. Uh, we have some political uncertainty with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the upcoming election. Uh, we're going to update the beastly picks for last week, and uh, we're going to close by running the first half of the Money Talks blog, blogcast interview uh, that we posted over the weekend where we tackle student loan debt. Uh, I interviewed a lawyer who took on $65,000 in in debt to attend law school. And we're going to talk about her mindset when she entered into that loan agreement and how much oversight was provided when she was choosing her repayment plan and the struggle that she uh, encountered since graduating with that repayment plan. There's another half of that podcast where I come on and talk about the issues that she faced and provide resources and answers to tackle those challenges. So uh, if you want to hear that and uh, there, and there's hyperlinks, uh, you know, in, involved with all that stuff as well. You can go to richby36.com, click on the Money Talks Blogcast tab at the top of the page, and then look for the student loan post. All right, let's get to the show. Well, the, the
1: no, biggest
0: news, or some of the biggest news of yesterday, Monday, was uh, pre-market. It came out that Trevor Milton, the founder and CEO of Nikola, uh, was resigning on the heels of these, on the heels of this Hindenburg uh, r- report that was really, really damning uh, to him personally, and. You know, I I talked about this a little bit in last week's podcast. I wrote a blog post on it um, last weekend as well, comparing Trevor Milton and Nicola to Eric Yen and Zoom, and just, you know, talking about the differences between the two leadership styles and the two uh, CEOs' reputations and how important that is for a company. And that Hindenburg report was. Damning! They had ten years of this guy just being a total fraud and and tricking people, defrauding people, lying to to business partners, and somehow he was able to just slide, you know, slide that greasy pole up, uh, <laughs> up the uh, up the food chain here. Don't feel don't feel too bad for him. Uh, part of the his resignation is he's walking away with three point one billion dollars in stock. Nicole is going to cover all of his legal fees. You know, it, it did come out that the SEC and the Department of Justice were investigating him and the company. And, yeah, I think this leaves Nicola in a pretty interesting position. Their, their deal with GM, where GM was going to come in and, and manufacture the Badger, which was their consumer pickup truck, and, and I think some of their semis as well, was really revealing. And it confirmed a lot of what the Hindenburg Report said was they don't have any proprietary technology all their all their claims have been false and fabricated so in this is a really interesting turning point for nicola they they come out and say in their 10q's that uh, you know in their financial statements that trevor milton was the most important asset for the company because of his business relationships his ability to get them into doors and to create partnerships. And over the last five days, uh, Nicole is down about 23%. It's actually bounced today. It's up 5.31%, which is shocking to me. It's so shocking to me that there are still people who want to own this company. So if you want to go read that blog post uh, from last week, it was Crazy and, and gratifying and, and weird all at the same time to wake up Monday and, and realize that my thesis had been proven true in six days after posting the, uh, the podcast last week and, and the blog post. But it's on the richby36.com blog. I guess the other biggest news of the week was the TikTok sale or merger, whatever you want to call it, with Oracle has been approved um, by our government. There's, there's still some, there's still some uncertainty around the deal. The, you know, the Chinese government has to approve the sale as well. But I think that the, kind of the, the, the backbone of the deal is Oracle and Walmart combined are going to take a 20% stake in a new company called TikTok US. TikTok's going to have their global headquarters in the United States. And I think they're going to be in Texas. They're also going to be setting up a five billion dollar uh, education fund for American education, which you know maybe that's the the rub that President trump wanted um, this is i think this is really significant for oracle you know in and, and to understand this, you know Oracle was started by Larry Ellison in nineteen seventy seven and they went public in the early nineties and They were the dominant software and hardware company in the the 90s and early 2000s. And like happens to a lot of these companies that, you know, are just, you know, compare them with Blockbuster. These companies that are super successful at at one thing, instead of spending money and time uh, on research and development to figure out what's next... They spend their money and time on perfecting what they're currently doing. And in Oracle's case, you know, they got surpassed by Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and some other companies when it came to cloud computing. They weren't ready for it. And I think that uh, Larry Ellison actually did an interview shortly after Amazon Web Services launched and, and was really negative on the cloud in general and saying that it you know, this, this was just a fad and what Oracle was doing with their hardware services was going to continue to be, um, the, you know, relevant in, in the, in the way of the future. And that's just absolutely not what happened. So Oracle over the last decade has really foundered and they've had a hard time catching up with Amazon, Microsoft, and Google in terms of cloud computing, uh, that's changed, and the TikTok deal is, I think, kind of the cherry on top of the sundae. You know, over the last year or so, uh, Zoom, that Zoom became a cloud client of Oracle. Um, I looked at their cloud computing revenue over the last year. And, you know, a year ago it was at six billion, and a quarter ago it was at six point eight billion. Right? It's they're growing their cloud services. Uh, pretty rapidly. And right now they only have about a 2% market share of cloud computing in the United States, but they've had some, their Zoom uh, eight by eight, I can't remember off the top of my head, they they had a couple of big customer wins last year. And again, I think that this signifies that Oracle is no longer like your parents' Oracle. They've you know they're they're a huge company with 3 or 4 billion shares outstanding they've been around forever they're a cash flow cow they have 40 billion dollars in revenue last year just based on revenue alone they're the 81st largest company in the United States right this isn't it's going to take a little bit of time to turn that because but because they have so much cash cash flow every year they're able to direct a lot if, if once they figure out what they want to do, they're able to dil- to direct a lot of uh, a lot of resources at it, and their cloud computing. Um, again, a lot of this is over my head, but from what I understand, that th- their cloud is now on par with AWS, with Azure, and with the Google Cloud, and I think that in five ten years, we'll look back and go that this was this was really the turning point for Oracle in terms of moving into the 21st century and, and and competing with the big boys again. So I think this is a, a really good thing for them, just obviously from a, a public and reputation standpoint. But you know they're going to be the – all of TikTok's gajillion million videos are going to be hosted on the Oracle cloud. All their data services are going to be run through Oracle's vertically integrated – Data systems, so this is a big deal for them. Um, it and there's also talks that TikTok US is going to IPO within the next year, which means that they're you know, however much Oracle's having to put into this twelve and a half billion. I think Walmart's putting in another seven and a half or something like that. Uh, but they're going to be able to realize some pretty you know and exit this position pretty quickly and realize liquidity. And I'm sure that you know look at what happened to Snow last week. I think they IPO'd at hundred bucks a share, and that same day they were up to three hundred. They're another cloud computing company. If, if and when TikTok does become public, I'd, I'd expect a very similar, um, very similar reaction from the market. Over hundred million Americans use this com- use this app, and you saw once the the Trump the news of the Trump ban came out, you've just seen TikTok ads. Everywhere, and they have some really good commercials and you know i I do think this is a positive thing for both Oracle and for Walmart to a lesser extent. you know Walmart, I think is the number one company by revenue in this country, and i don't know if their seven point five percent stake will have they're, they're not in the same business you know it doesn't and their seven and a half billion or whatever they're putting into this deal. It's not going to really affect their bottom line that much. I did want to talk about uh, some leaked FinCEN documents that show North Korea laundered billions of dollars through shell companies into some of the largest banks in the world, including HSBC. And I think there was a couple of American banks named in there as well. FinCEN is the financial regulatory body in the United States. It, it oversees uh, banks, making sure that banks are adhering to the regulations and, uh, any money laundering and all that sort of stuff. So currently when a bank's, when a, when a bank think, you know, there are rules of whatever it is round number. If, if there's a deposit, that's a round number over $10,000 or they're layering deposits. Banks have to report potentially suspicious activity to FinCEN they're called SARS, suspicious activity reports. And, Uh, Last week or the week before, there was about 2,100 SARs leaked, and it showed that North Korea has been laundering money through Western financial institutions for a couple of decades, maybe a little less than that. And I thought this was really, really interesting. Nothing is going to happen to these banks. They're not going to be punished in any way. They made millions of dollars off laundering the money from whatever it is, slave labor in North Korea. And, you know, according to, well, I guess before I get to that, FinCEN has received almost 700,000 SARs, SARS, this year. It's impossible for them to investigate every one of these. So I think the system that people, that we think, that we trust is in place to catch money laundering, it doesn't work. Um, It's a government regulator. You got all the bureaucracy and red tape involved with being a government entity. And banks last year, just the American banks, spent over $62 million lobbying the U.S. government. That number was higher in 2015. And here's why that matters. In in 2015, the Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act was passed with several amended laws that benefited banks and big financial institutions. And you can go look at their, um, on opensecrets.com, you can look at banks history of lobby spending lobbying spending since 1990 and it's an astronomical sum of money so some of the the things in this uh, in this consolidated and further con- consolidated and further continuing appropriations act some of the things that came out of that it permitted multi-employer defined benefit pension plans that are expected to become insolvent to reduce benefits to participants that's not good, right? That's uh, you know, if you're a, a carpenter or a teamster or uh, you know, in a work for a bakery, right? Like these are, are unions, pension plans, and if for whatever reason, if you're, well, there's a lot of reasons, from poor management to excessive fees to corruption, um, these pension plans are in a lot of trouble and they're going to go bankrupt soon. And and what this is, what that says is. Instead of declaring bankruptcy and continuing to pay out people in their retirement, these plans can just cut benefits. That uh, Appropriations Act also increased the limits for campaign contributions to national political party committees. And there were amendments to the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that expanded the Permissible derivatives activities of financial institutions. So, the Dodd Frank Act—I'm sure most of you are familiar with it—came about after 2008, when all these big bankers and you know they've really fucked us, and we're making you know on these collateralized CDOs, collateralized debt op- obligations, we're making money hand over fist, and uh, didn't you know just basically through the the safety of the the financial instrument out the window in exchange for bonuses and money. And that really ushered in a new era of finance where, you know, you have the first ever quantitative easing by our central bank. Um, you know, and, it's, and you've seen that continue. And just kind of the way these, these snowballs work is the, the first quantitative easing, you know, I'll say this in quotation marks, it worked. It got us out of a, a recession. But it also flooded the economy with debt and created bad habits, um, and, and you're seeing this now. Look at what happened in March, uh, with the Fed issuing 3.2 trillion dollars in, in debt uh, and buying 600 billion dollars of securities a week in March. Right, 600 billion was more than the entire quantitative easing program in 2008, and they were doing that every week. So. It really, you know, 2008 kicked off this new era in our financial system. And the Dodd-Frank Act was put in place to regulate banks and to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And in 2015, in 2016, 2017, you know, a lot of those regulations started getting rolled back. And it's like we just, you know, we have such a short-term memory. And the money, the money that's coming in makes us have that short-term memory. So, you know, I just think it's really interesting how nothing changes. Another thing that I wanted to talk about here, uh, political uncertainty in general is bad for markets. We all know that. There's already, in my opinion, a huge possibility that this election is going to be contested. And we don't know, you know, there'll be election night and a winner will be declared, but then we won't know who actually won until inauguration day. Potentially, and I think that this will probably get decided by the Supreme Court. You have all these issues surrounding the United States Postal Service and mail-in ballots, and uh, you know President Trump telling his voters to vote twice, and who knows what's going to happen. But I think that would be if we don't know who the president is after election night. That's going to be an issue for markets. Markets don't like uncertainty. And then over the weekend, we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg pass away, creating. Um, an even more lopsided Republican to Democrat uh, split in the Supreme Court. And this nomination has become, ah, well, I guess it was politically charged from the very beginning. This shouldn't be a surprise. But you had President Obama come out and implore the Senate not to hold any confirmation hearings until after the election. You have the Republicans you know, trying to get this done very, very quickly. I think that it's you know today's Tuesday. It's only a couple of days after R B G passed away, and there's already talk of who the the final couple of people on Trump's list are going to be. This is a, going to become a, a heavily politicized issue. And, I, and I, look, we already have. Uh, we don't have another stimulus package. We our unemployment rate is right now where it was in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. We have the potential for another government shutdown. And then you add this into the mix. I think it's going to be a very, very rocky road uh, up until we, we get a new president and there's some certainty around what's going on uh, in our political system. And I think like seven of the last 10 days or seven of the last nine days have been red days for the market. Like big time red. Uh, I think the S&P is down 8 to 10% since, since its highs a couple of weeks ago. I expect that to continue. You know, there's going to be big up days and and there's going to be, I think a lot of big down days as well. So my advice, and I've talked about this before, buy companies that you believe in. You know, it's really hard to hold on to not sell, which is what you should be doing. You should be buying equities and just don't look at them and just hold them over time. They're going to go up. It doesn't happen all in, in a day or in a week, but when you open up your Fidelity account or Robinhood account and you see that you know your positions are down eight to ten percent, it's a lot harder to hold on to that position if you don't know what the company does or how they make money, and if you don't believe in them. So buy companies. It makes it so much easier uh, f- from the mental side of investing. Is I think the most important piece, right? Like not having the not panicking and selling out. And there's all these studies that show, you know, the average investor's return in a given year is 2%. And the average return of the S&P in a given year is almost 10%. And that's because investors panic and they sell and you miss the big bounce back days that happen. So try to, you know, adjust your mindset, uh, add more if you can, but if you don't have the money to do it, just don't sell. Don't look at your positions. Buy companies that you believe in, that you know are going to grow over the long term, that you don't have to check every day. It's going to help you sleep better. It's going to help your your attitude, your mindset. And it's also going to help your uh, your financial situation and, and your return. Uh, speaking of returns, let's get to a the beastly newsletter updates. Again, richby36.com. I've partnered with a market technician. I'm handling the fundamental side uh, of the analysis. And then uh, we throw a technical screen over some companies that we like and figure out which ones have the best risk reward scenarios for us. And for you could try the newsletter right now, two weeks for free. Uh, After that, it's 30 bucks a month. Every Monday morning, you'll get this, our three trade ideas in your inbox. And for last week, our three ideas were Zillow, Canadian National Railway, so CNI, and Crocs, those hideous shoes that everybody loves. Uh, just a quick update here. Uh, Zillow up 12.41% since we entered the position. We recommended a stop-loss order protecting our downside uh, with a target downside you know, max loss at 28%. We had an upside target gain of 62%. So basically, for every one point of downside risk that we took on, we took on two points uh, to the upside. I think there's a lot to like about Zillow. Um, they are, they're already the biggest housing website out there. They're, they're now buying houses. Uh, you can sell your house to Zillow. I th- like that Zestimate, everybody has used that, right? Like, oh, this house is selling for $800,000. What's the Zestimate say? And I'm going to trust that Zestimate more than I'm trusting whatever they're listing it for. Well, Zillow will Zestimate your house and then buy it from you. No hassle you decide when you want to move out. And this is a relatively new tool that they've just introduced. I think it's going to be a boon for them. And Also, you have the Fed coming out and saying that interest rates are going to stay low for the next two or three years. That's very positive for real estate. Anyway, I think there's a lot to like about Zillow. There's more information, uh, obviously, in the Email that we send out and the Beastly email that we send out. But Zillow's up 12.41% since we entered the position. CNI, the Canadian National Railway, is down 1.37%. We had a stop loss protecting our downside at negative 32%, with an upside target of, of positive 69%. Now, railways, you know, this isn't going to be like a, a triple bagger overnight or anything like that. It's you're pretty dependent on the, the rate of GDP growth in the country, right? The, the more the economy grows, the more railways uh, and rail cars need to transport stuff, whether it's petroleum or lumber or other types of durable goods. So we think this is a—they handled the COVID crisis very well. They cut costs. They're the only trans-American railway. They go from Canada all the way down to Mexico, and— I think over time, this is a, a company that you want to be in just for kind of steady growth. And it's going to help, certainly help on these types of days where, you know, Tesla's down, Tesla was down 20% in a day a couple of weeks ago, right? Having some of that, you know, dividend paying, slow and steady type of stock to balance out some of your uh, riskier stuff, I think helps. And then our third uh, position that we recommended was Crocs. It's up, Twenty-one basis points since we entered the position. We had a stop loss protecting our downside at negative twenty-one percent, with an upside target of one hundred and seven percent. So, basically, for every one point of downside risk that we take, we're looking for five points of upside return. Crocs are the seventh most popular shoe among teenagers, according to a study put out by Piper Jaffray, or whatever the investment bank is. Uh, I think it's they're hideous, but it's become something of a social phenom. And they're, I don't know, like pugs. They're bulldogs, these hideous dogs that are just so ugly that they're cute. Crocs has entered into that territory. Uh, The revenue looks great. And I think it's a company to like. Excuse me. So again, I'm going to close here. We're going to run the last weekend's Money Talk a Money Talks blogcast where we interviewed a lawyer about her decision to go into $65,000 in debt to attend law school. There's a second half to this interview, and then there's resources posted on richby36.com on the Money Talks blogcast that you can, you know, go to richby36.com, click on that tab, and, uh, you know, all the hyperlinks, uh, the studentaid.gov, uh, sofi.com, all the, the stuff that we talk about in the second half of the interview, which is available under that blogcast. Click on the blogcast, click on student loans, and you'll see a podcast is linked at the top of the blog post. Hence, that's why we're calling it a blogcast. But I'm very I've got a lot of positive feedback about this. And there's over $1.4 trillion in student loan debt in this country and it's, it's an issue. It, it, the people who service student loan debt are for-profit companies, and that's, a, that's another issue. They get money by having you... They don't want you to pay off your loans, essentially, so they make it hard for you to do it. And those CEOs, the, the presidents of universities, there's so many people making money off these 18 to 24-year-olds who don't understand what they're getting into. And you're going to hear that in this interview with Grace. So that's going to do it for today's show. Uh, we actually have a new email that you can reach us at, George at richby 36com You can follow us on Twitter at stock underscore bytes. Thanks very much. And uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Grace. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Grace, thanks for joining me on richbuy 36com When we spoke earlier, you told me that your number one challenge with money was your student loan debt. Can you tell me more about what specifically you're struggling with and how you got into the situation?
1: Sure. So I took out a bunch of loans to go to law school um, and the I had to take out about 65000 Um over the course of the three years that I was in law school and comparatively to other students who have been in law school, that's not as bad as it can be definitely. But um, what I'm struggling with now is just what the most effective way is to tackle the loan. If it's just to put a bunch of money towards it and just throw as much money at it as I can, or if it's to just um, take my time with it and, you know make a steady monthly payment that will stick around for longer. I don't know what the answer is yeah.
0: what um, what what research or preparation did you do before you took out the loan? and then what resources were uh, given to you and then what did you have to go out and search for on your own?
1: I don't remember actually doing much research other than I remember understanding there was a difference between private loans and public loans, federal loans. Um, And I think it was just an option at the beginning, you know, pick one or the other. I went with the federal loans, but I don't remember doing any kind of research about it. Later in law school, they did provide us with a class about what repayment plan to pick to pay off your loan, depending on what kind of loan you took out. But I don't think they provided us with any kind of um, pre-loan discussion. I, I do. I'm sure that there was some sort of information that I read about, but I don't remember specifically what it was.
0: Were you assigned any type of counselor, you know, anybody to help you through it, or was this all up to you?
1: The school did definitely have financial advisors there. Um, that you could go talk to about your, your situation. Um, but like I said, that, that the main thing that I remember is that one class, I think it was just one day, they had everybody come in and they talked us through how to repay our loans. And this was, I think it was the last semester of law school, if not the second to last, maybe. Um, they seemed more concerned with how we were going to pay them on the back end than they didn't really care as much about what kind of loan we took out at
0: the front end. Knowing it, you know, so this was five, six years ago? Yes. Do you you feel that you adequately, like knowing what you know now and going through the, the process on the back end, do you feel like you adequately understood the loan agreement and what you were taking on when you took out the loan when you were 21, 22 years old?
1: I do feel like, you know, I understood, like, you know, I take money out, there's going to be interest rate and I'm going to be responsible for paying it back. That was, there was no question about that. Um, I don't think I really understood enough about the repayment options at the end. So basically what ended up happening is I decided to opt for the public loan forgiveness plan because I was going to work into um, the public service loan forgiveness. I was going to work in public service and there was this thing that they said that you could do. You could work um, 10 years in public service and then get your loans forgiven by the government essentially. Um, What I didn't realize when I went into law school is that I would still be responsible for making payments during those 10 years. And there were tons and tons of requirements that I had to make sure I was complying with throughout the entirety of the 10 years, um, while I was making those payments. So, um, it actually ended up being really complicated because I thought I was complying with everything for the last four years. I thought I was making the right payments. I thought I was on the right repayment plan. I thought I was filling out all the right paperwork, um, for the last four years. And then recently, um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was looking at my student loan stuff and Real, they, I called them and they said to me, oh, your last three years of payments have not been counting because you didn't fill out this one form at the very beginning. Um, so that.
0: Did anybody tell you that you needed to fill out that form?
1: I don't remember anybody ever saying that to me. And I don't remember. I do remember speaking to loan officers um, and them telling me I was all good to go. And so I was really upset when a few months ago they told me, oh, well, actually you were supposed to do this. And the person at the front end didn't tell me that. That's my memory of it. My memory is you're, you're, you're good to go. You'll be fine. Just make sure you redo your paperwork every year. And I have been doing that. But only a few months ago, they let me know, oh, you didn't fill out this one form three years ago. So these payments don't count. So I had to make a decision at that point and this is why it's been more on my mind lately, is that I had to decide, am I going to keep doing, trying to reach this public service loan forgiveness at the end of 10 years? Or am I just going to say, you know what, it's just not worth it. I'll just start making the, the payments because what they make you do is they make you enroll in a repayment program that gives you very, very low payments. Um, but what that means is that my, the interest on my loan is just like skyrocketing and going through the roof. And so my loan is just getting bigger and bigger and I'm not really making a dent. I think at the end of the four years, I had paid off. I started with 65 in debt. And I think at the end of the four years, I was, I was 62 or 63 in four years. And i had been making $300 payments for four years. It just didn't make any sense anymore. And I didn't think I was going to be able to keep up with all the paperwork that they were being super tricky about. So I have just decided, I think I'm just going to make, more aggressive payments towards it and not not try to do this forgiveness thing because it, it it's gonna end up costing me more money to wait on it for ten years and then run the risk of not having my loans forgiven at the end of the 10 years.
0: Yeah, they, they pull some other right. piece of paper out of the hat that you didn't right.
1: or President Trump decides that public loans um, public service loan forgiveness is not a thing anymore been
0: an issue. Do do you, because you missed this piece of paper three years ago, does that mean you would now have to work 13 years in the public sector in order to get them forgiven? Do they restart the whole clock? So you
1: have to make 120 qualifying payments and it doesn't matter when you make those payments, but they have to be on the, the payment program. So yeah, I would have had to extend it. How is this
0: you know, I, I remember listening to a Michael Lewis podcast where he interviewed several people about student loan debt and he, and he talked to them about the stress of, you know, this one woman, her, she was losing her hair, her teeth were falling out. She's a teacher in New York and, you know, she did the public service thing, found out eight or nine years into it that she didn't fill out that piece of paper. And the, the the people who service the loans are are private companies that make millions and millions of dollars, and their incentive is to keep you in the program to keep you paying every month. So they have all sorts of tricks and tips to keep you to keep you in, right? Like so, th- for two questions: when you when you called in, or how has your relationship been with your loan processor or loan servicer, whatever that word is? And then, you know, has there been any emotional or what emotional side effects have come about from all this?
1: Um, relationship with them is non-existent in that, you know, you call and I get different information every time I call there. Um, so Bad in that I don't feel like I can't trust what they're saying to me about anything, and um, what was the second part of your question?
0: What's the emotional impact of all this?
1: Yeah, I was definitely super upset when i when I got off the phone that day. I was um, really furious that I felt like they had uh, schemed me out of all those payments and I
0: you know it's time,
1: Right. And if, if I had known that was going to be the way it was going to be, I would have just started making aggressive payments from the beginning. Um, to, to reduce it down quicker, but, um, yeah, so it was definitely a, a tough emotional day that day. I've kind of gotten over it. You know, I'm just going to do what I can to get it down. Up until that point, I wasn't too stressed about it because I was under the impression, like, "Hey, I'm just going to make these really low payments for ten years, and then have the rest of my loans forgiven, and it'll be all good." Um, since then, it's definitely been different.
0: Yeah, I think you you answered part of this question. You know, what would you do if you had to do it over again? What would you do differently? And and you did say that you would just start making the aggressive payments from day one but if you go back before that, is there anything that you could have done differently to prevent yourself from getting into the situation in the first place? Were there any other avenues that you could have explored uh, or, you know, was there any other resource that could have been given to you to help you understand? Like, uh, does that make sense? Like if, if you had to go back and do it over again, how would your, plan of attack change other than just making aggressive payments? Would it have been more education? Would you have not gone to law school? I was going to say, I Would think, the only, I think the only
1: other thing I could have done was just not go to law school yeah. because, because I had to take out a loan to go. And, you know, I've gotten kind of messed over for the last three or four years, but in the scheme of things, it's not that much money that i am losing out on um so i think the only different thing i could have done is just is not go to law school so now what i'm thinking is what can i do now so that in 10 years i'm not looking back and being like man what should i have done in 2020 tonight